So, you know, if you're at home and you're finding yourself difficult, uh, having a hard time uh, connecting to God, just sitting in front of your TV by yourself, I want to encourage you guys, one, uh, our sanctuary is open. We have live service every Sunday, and this is a lot of free space out here. Just come out and be a part of the service. And if not, uh, I want to encourage you guys to, you know, think about creating a watch party at home or with some other group of people that you feel comfortable with um, during the season and watch the message together as you share, you break bread, and you do life together, right? We are in a series called The Line That Unites Us, The Line That Unites Us. And this series was, it was created because of a, a react, not a reaction, but a response to what we saw going on in, in, in the narrative of our culture last year, a narrative of our culture that, that sought to divide people, that sought to separate and define people, that start, sought to label and point fingers of who people are and judge people, right? And the, and, and the most painful part is that in the, within the Christian community, we see this, these topics and these things that come up create division among us, that somehow to disagree with each other means that you cannot co- uh, reconcile and live together and follow God together, right? And this, this series was designed to remind us that the line that unites us is always Jesus Christ, the one who dies for us, who died for us. The line that unites us is always our Savior who gave his life for the reconciliation of all humanity, right? And so in this series, I wanted to address big topics that have been very divisive in our culture, topics like sexuality, topics like abortion, topics like justice that's been very prevalent in our cultural narrative these past year, okay? And I want to be able to address in a way that, that brings grace into the picture and yet a clearness of what the Bible speaks into uh, the, the, the conversation about, okay? Um, last week, I, want, I laid the foundation with this idea that is it possible for people to disagree with each other sharply and yet still maintain relationship with one another. See, in our culture is this. Our culture tells me if I don't agree with you and I don't like what you're saying, I'm going to cancel you, separate myself from you, divide myself away from you. That's the culture. That we don't like it, if you don't agree with me, I will cancel you. But the Christian message as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, all the way to chapter 10, we see this picture that, yes, there are principles that we stand for. I will disagree with you, but I will bend over backwards to make sure that this relationship is not broken, that I will walk with you in this journey of life, that I'm not going to separate myself from you or divide myself from you or even cancel you, no matter how much I disagree with you but I will walk with you through this journey. And that's, that, and that's the message that I want us to really hold on to as we move towards these topics. You're able to disagree with somebody, church, without having to resort to canceling them, ghosting them, no longer having affections for them, separating relationship for them. You're able to disagree sharply over these things and have a conversation and growth for these things, Right? And today I want to talk about a huge topic that's, that's very difficult to address. And I think it doesn't get addressed a lot in church. And if it does get addressed, it gets addressed in a very extreme way. And it's a topic of sexuality, right? It's a huge topic. It covers a range of things, including 
sex outside of marriage, orgies, pornography, bestiality, divorce, adultery, homosexuality. And Jesus even took it a step further, saying that if you would lust for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So it's not just about physical acts of sexuality, but it's actually emotional thoughts, emotional connections of it as well, right? And the Bible clearly speaks about these things. But here's the thing. The message that I want to share today is it is instructional, but the message I want to share today is I want to give a rebuke to the church, I think, a little bit. I want to give a rebuke to the church because the the, the, the conversation that we've had about sexuality when it comes to the people in our community and the, and the world around us has been so driven by our politics, or has been so driven by our cultural narrative that instead of reconciling and bringing love and peace, what we've done is we've created division and separation, right? I think, I think the way we've com- we, we communicated sexuality whether it's sex outside of marriage or whether it's adultery or whether it's pornography or um, a divorce, I think the way we communicate it is it's either one or the other, that we set these, 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 these sins up as the primary reason why you're lost. And I think the conversation tells us different. I think the Bible tells us different, okay? And, and I think what happens is when we, when we speak in this topic, in such a way, the, the impression that we create, the, the, the storyline, the narrative that we portray is not a narrative of Christ on the cross dying for sinners. The narrative we create is that you need to be like me or you're going to hell. You need to get yourself in line and follow the rules and do what is right or you are gone, right? We create rigid boundaries. We create authoritative rules that maybe God is not even speaking directly into these things. That instead of actually freeing people to experience the beauty of God, you push people away in delighting in the beauty of who their God is, their maker is. And, 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 and on top of that, the church does this horror, horrific thing is that when you begin to struggle with these things, whether it's pornography, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's adultery, whatever it is, when you begin to have these temptations or these affections or these feelings, the church conversation oftentimes is to suppress them. Try not to feel them anymore. Try to get away from them. Don't think these things anymore as if you can control the emotional responses that's going on in your mind and in your heart. But for some reason, the church believes that if you would just try harder and push these things down, they'll go away. And if you stay quiet about it, then you are regenerate and everything's going to be okay. As long as you just don't show anyone what's going on on the inside, you should be okay. And on top of that, what's even crazier is that we think that, you know what, if we just get them married, right, a guy struggles with pornography, if I could just get him married, it's going to go away. It's going to be fixed. Someone struggles with homosexuality, if I could just get them married, every temptation is going to disappear. As if marriage is the thing that's going to regenerate the soul. As if marriage, acted, marriage, there's a glory to marriage, by the way. There's a beautiful glory to marriage, but it's not the highest glory. The highest glory is God doing his work. God is the one that transforms. God is the one that changes. God is the one that rehabilitates. And God is the one that breathes life into a person. 
It is not through the suppression of works. It is not through the marriage ideology that saves you. It is God himself. And so we, as the church, what I've realized over time as I'm listening to the narrative that's, that was coming in in droves and I was, and I was listening to just the, 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 the reaction that people have against the community of faith is that, you know what, honestly, it's because the church has spoken about sexuality in such a way that is not beneficial, does not communicate care and love. Are we to stand firm in what God tells us? Of course. Are we to stand firm in what God speaks to us about sexual ethics and his delight in what sex is? Of course. But you got to be able to communicate in a way that brings them to the foot of the cross. You guys get me? To the foot of the cross and not to the feeling of guilt and shame that leads to quietness. So today we're going to talk about this. Three things. I want, I want, I want to create a, a, a storyline for you guys. And the only way to talk about sexuality now is I have to go back to the beginning in Genesis and paint the picture all the way to now. Because unless you understand the heart of sexuality, you're not going to understand the heart of God when it comes to these things. You're not going to understand how to communicate the cross. If you don't understand the beginning, then how are you going to get them to the Savior? If you don't understand the rebellion and the brokenness, how are you going to get them to the foot of the one who can save and free them? Right? So this is the conversation we're going to have today. First thing I'm going to talk about is the context, the background. Right? Secondly, I'm going to talk about the problem. And third, I'm going to talk about the solution. Okay? Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 18 and 19. We're going to be in there for a little bit. So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Let me start here. This is, uh, this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. And Paul, Paul is going to speak to this church. And he, and he lays down the book of Romans, which is a fantastic letter, by the way, to this church. Because this is the church that kind of came to faith without understanding the, the theology behind it. They just knew that Jesus was Lord. And they just bowed out his, uh, his feet and worshiped him. And so Paul comes in and says, let me give you... The beauty of the cross, the, the beauty of Jesus, the power that he exhibits, and the, the, the freedom that comes to a believer. But before I give you that, let me, let me give you the picture of why you need that. Why, why it has to come to this position. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, the Bible says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And so the story of this wickedness, the story of this rebellion, starts in the Garden of Eden, in the beginning of creation, where this conversation between Adam and Eve and the serpent and the devil, right, goes about where Eve sees this fruit. He, she sees this tree, and it is beautiful, and it is pleasing, and it gives you wisdom, and she takes of it, and she makes, and she, and she chooses this, this tree because it begins, she chooses to partake of this fruit, and she gives it to Adam because it's the story of the beginning of someone choosing to allow their affections, what they want, what they feel, to define what goodness is. And so what we see in the garden is that God says, I have loved you. I have created all things for you. I have made, I, I, I made all creation, right, 
uh, as by, uh, by him all things are made, and by him all things were made for him. All of this was made for him. And so he, 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 he lays Adam and Eve into this place, and he tells them, you were made for glory. You were made for beauty. You were made for wonders. And the only thing I have is this. Will you trust me? Will you love me? Would you believe that I am good for you? Do not eat of this tree, he says. But Adam and Eve in their story, and it's our ancestry, right, sees that this tree was pleasing to the eye, right? It was good to eat. It was something that was ability to make them wise. And so in their feelings, in their affections, in their wants, they chose it. And the story of rebellion, this beginning of godlessness and wickedness, is what we were born into. The story of Adam and Eve is our ancestry. It's our inheritance. It's a story of what? That we are born into this, 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 this aura that we believe as long as we feel as if our feelings should be authoritative above and beyond God's word. We were born into the same conclusion that Adam and Eve came to is that as long as our feelings are there, our feelings should in any way be authoritative, better beyond the word of God, beyond the affections of our God for us. And so, the, so this rebellion begins to be a part of our ancestry, be a part of our inheritance, be a part of who we are. And we set ourselves up as humanity seeking for that, always trying to be our own master, always trying to differentiate ourselves, standing ourselves up and saying, I know better. I know well. I am good. I don't need God to give me boundaries. Boundaries is what holds me back. Boundaries is what keeps me from experiencing true freedom. But what we're going to see here is what? Actually, boundaries was there from the beginning, and boundaries was not meant to jail you. Boundaries was meant to free you. Look at verse 20. It says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It is in the stars. It's in the mountains. It's in the oceans. Right? It is in nature. It is in the rhythm of the movement of the universe, being understood for what has been made so that men are without excuse. And so what... Paul is saying that when you look at the universe and you look at the world around you, this revelation that God has is that everything has its boundaries. The sun rises and sets because God sets the boundaries for his rising and setting. Stars move because God sets the path and the pattern for its movement. Everyone has boundaries. And the boundaries comes from who? From a father. And if you, are a, if you realize that your God is a good father... That he is a good father. The boundaries are not meant to destroy you. The boundaries are meant to free you. And actually, it's when you live within God's, the purpose and intention of God's order, that's when you re- receive the most freedom. And I use this example all the time. It's one of my favorite examples. That if a fish, a fish is most free when it's within the boundaries of what? Of water. A fish is most free when it's within the boundaries of water. If this fish decides to itself, I feel restricted by this boundary. I don't want to be here. I want to express myself and do what I think is best and decides to jump out of the water. What will happen to the fish? It will move towards death. Will it not? 
the boundary of the water is not meant to destroy the fish. It is meant to free the fish. And in the same way, when we begin to recognize that when God sets up boundaries, especially boundaries of sexuality, the beauty of sexuality, the picture of sexuality, it is not meant to restrict you and destroy you and keep you held down. It is meant to show you that this, and in this stuff, it is where you are most free. It is where you are most safe, right? Otherwise, what we see in our lives, okay, when we live outside this boundary is what we see the willingness to set ourselves up as total authority. Look at the masses around you. Look at history. Look at our culture. Every culture sets themselves up as their master. They want to be their own master. And every culture and every time and every lineage and every culture and every legacy sets themselves as their own master. And what do we see? We don't see more freedom. We see more chaos, destruction. You see, we think that God is horrible, and we actually attribute things to God that he is not. When, when we think about the idea of boundaries, we attribute to God that he, is, must, he must be rigid, he must be vengeful, he must be strict. When he is not, he is what? He is kind. He is kind. He is good. He is father. And if you see him as that, you will see that he is being kind to us, in the specificness of how he shows us the boundaries that puts us in place that will ultimately honor him and give us, right, freedom within our own bodies. What am I trying to set up, guys? I'm setting up the picture, right? The reason why we feel the way we feel, it starts from the very beginning, the broken relationship, that somehow we believe that we are better, smarter, wiser, than God, that we are above and beyond God's word. We don't believe that God's boundaries is a good thing. And we hear narratives in our culture that says, break the boundaries, overcome these things, free yourself. But the boundaries of sexuality, especially in sexuality, was never meant to keep you down. It was always meant as a good father to free you. Let me show you. Verse 20. Uh, Verses 20, uh, 20, 21 to 25, it says this. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for their degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Right? That in this, in this rebellion now, the Bible says we turn to our own idols. We turn to our own things that we, that we, that, that we use to make ourselves feel like we are in control. Idols back then could have been figurines or whatnot, but the idols today... The idols today is the, 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 the declaration of our sexuality. The idols today is the declaration of what we deem is right based on how we feel. And we begin to engage and be released into that. That rather than worship the creator, we worship. 
You see, why do you think in the beginning the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth? Why doesn't it... Those things is because if God is creator of all creation, all of those attributes, king, sovereign, lord, master, they're already included in the picture of creation. Because why? It means that if he is creator, we are created. If he is the creator, then you are created beings from God. That means that we are automatically subject to him. If the Bible is true, and if God is who he says he is, and if he's truly the creator, that means that you are the created. And by that definition, you are subject to God in every way. The Bible says, I was created for somebody. You were created for somebody. All things were created through him and for him. And when we say that God is creator, we are appealing to the fact that God created us for himself. So it is actually natural when you're submitting to him as he is. And it's actually the safest place to be, right? That God is the creator. That means that submitting to him is actually, if you are to be wise, it is the most safe place to be. But the Bible tells us what's on the heart. The heart is, although we know him, Although we recognize the boundaries placed before us, although we understand instinctively, innately, what happens when we break boundaries? The destructions and the, the, the cycle of pain that, that, is, that ensues with it. Although we know these things, we still chose and we still choose to worship created things. Our desires, our personal affections, our wants, our our hearts. We are terrible masters, are we not? We are terrible masters. Every single time we try to set ourselves up to be the one who's in charge, the one who dictates, the one who knows what's going on, we are terrible masters because why? We are wicked. There is something in our hearts that is broken. There is, our, our, there, there is a, there's a deceitfulness that we, that, that, we, that we succumb to every single time. But God is not that way. He is perfect. He is pure. He is unique. He is kind. He is great. He is wise. And so, so to submit to him as creator is probably the safest place to be in the whole universe. It takes faith to believe that. But if you believe it and you understand that, it brings the most joy. So my picture is this. The context, this is the guys, the context is this. The rebellion and the conversation of sexuality that we've been having in our culture and in our, in our time and our place, it's not a bad conversation. It's a great conversation. But I want, I want you to see the origin of that rebellion, the origin of that conversation. The origin of that conversation was not simply, I feel, and then why is the church or the religion or the in, in, these institutions trying to suppress the way I feel? Why can't I just love the people I want to love? Why can't I just do what makes me feel right? I was made to feel this way. I was born to feel this way. Why all of a sudden would you create this mindset for me that says that I am somehow broken that I feel this way? The heart of that feeling, whether it's homosexuality, adultery, pornography, lust, 
the heart of those feelings, right, it comes from this desire from the very beginning that says, I'm in control. We, we inherited this. It's part of our ancestry. And I'm not just trying to call out homosexuality. I'm calling out a lot of these things. Pornography. Lot, do you know how often brothers struggle with these things? We keep it secret. We keep it hidden. We keep it suppressed to think that if no brother talks about it, then it must not be happening. And it fools all of our sisters. And when they get married and they find out the, 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 the issues of their husbands, they're like, what just happened here? We suppress these things thinking that somehow marriage is going to fix it. But marriage doesn't fix it because the problem is not the solution is not in marriage. The solution is in Jesus. The solution is in there is a brokenness that is there. There is a rebellion that is there. And there is a regeneration that must occur. And that regeneration only occurs when you become to this place where you behold that God is the creator and you are the created. That he made all these things for him. And he knows that anything less than what he has set is less than the best. You can do it. I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying you can't. But anything less than the design is less than the best for you. And he's made you for him. Okay? And so what becomes, and so if this is the rebellion, if this is the narrative, if this is the conversation, if, and if we have misplaced our understanding of who God is, and, we, and we've lost the picture of the delight in which God has for us, and the wantingness of freedom that he seeks for us, what is the result of that? Look at verse 26 to 32. This is what he says. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and re were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, and he gave them over to depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, every greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice that. And the result of the rebellion the problem that comes forth from this lack of seeing the creator for who he is, the, the result of this, this, this wantingness to, to, to engage in just simply how we feel rather than understanding that God has a design, he has a boundary for us to thrive us, to flourish us, to free us. The result of this is what? Is that our culture tells us. Our culture tells us we have the autonomy to decide what we want to do with our bodies, with our thoughts. And we give in to that because why? It feels right. It sounds right. It sounds just. It sounds good. All right? But all it is, all it is, it just, it just goes back to the original picture of Adam and Eve eating of this fruit, saying that you will be like God. You will set yourself up as what? As God himself. And you can see that fruit scattered throughout society. You can see that issue becoming to be prevalent. 
And we see a society and a nature and a culture that does what? That speaks and, 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 and engages and, and celebrates. Celebrates something that's less than the best. That when they lost a picture of who their God is, they celebrate something that is no longer beautiful. Right? It feels right. It sounds true. It sounds just. But when you say stuff like that, you don't take into account of the fact that we are finite. We are mutable and our heart is deceitful above all things. My understanding of myself is flawed. Your understanding of yourself is flawed. But there's a God who understands everything through and through. He sees the big picture. He understands the great narrative. And I'll tell you the truth. Can I be honest with you? It's not natural to say, I'm going to submit to God, even though my feelings tells me otherwise. It's not natural. It's not natural for a brother to say, I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend and submit to my God. It's not natural for a brother not to desire, right, sexual freedom when there is so much temptation and, 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 that, and, and that, that powerless of, of emotion that, that drives in his soul. It's not natural to say, I'm going to surrender that to God and trust that in his word and his truth, he gives me freedom. It's not natural. It's not natural for someone who is struggling with homosexuality, who, who is in it, to say that I'm going to give up these emotions and just trust God. It is not natural. It's not natural for me to trust in an unseen being to do with the body that God, that I can feel and taste and touch and smell. It's not natural to do that. But as we can see, as we can see, what happens when we become the masters of ourselves? The Bible says they, there is a journey. They are overcome and filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What we see in the rebellion is not more freedom. What we see in the rebellion is more depravity. We see more brokenness that comes out of it. We see division that comes out of it. We see separation. We see fights. We see anger. We see not love and unity, not grace and kindness. We see separation, division, hate. And so what's, 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 what's the Christian message into this conversation then? What is the message of, of Christ into this place? Obviously, we know that God made us for something beautiful. That he made us for him. That we were meant for glory and beauty and wonders. And the boundaries he set for us is meant to free us. But in our choosing of rebellion, we see a journey of just constant chasing of wanting to feel like I'm the master. And yet, the more you beat, set yourself up as a master of something, the more you begin to see the world around you fall into this cycle of brokenness and hurt and pain, depression, lostness. And what is the solution into this? What is the solution into this, 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 this spirit? Is it for the church to come into this and to yell repentance or you're going to go to hell for the feelings that you have? 
Is it for the church to come into this conversation and say, unless you do what we tell you to do, you're doomed forever? That this sin, this one sin that somehow that you have struggled with, that we're going to make it the primary issue and idol and problem before God's eyes? That this right there, this alone is the thing that's going to negate you and disqualify you for the love of God? Is that our conversation? It seems like it. It seems like it because we take this thing and we have politicized it. We've created it in such a narrative that makes it look like the church is out to get you rather than to love you. And the church has never been about perfect people, if you ever know. The church is full of broken people. And if you sit there and you think that somehow you are superior than someone else, you've forgotten one thing very clearly. You've forgotten that Jesus had to die to save your sinful heart. What is the message of the Christian into this conversation? Three things. You have to understand something. At the heart of Christianity is Jesus dying on the cross for his enemies. Not for those he likes, not for those who agrees with him, not for those who appreciate him. He died for his enemies. And the implication is that the cross levels the playing field. How arrogant is it of you to look at someone who struggles with either homosexuality, pornography, who have gone through this situation of divorce, who have hurt through adultery? How arrogant of you to look at them and say, I am somehow wiser, better, and more knowledgeable than you in this situation. So unless you stop, unless you cut yourself out of this, you are no longer qualified for the kingdom of God. See, the cross levels the playing field because the moment you say that, you forget that Jesus Christ had to die for you. So the arrogance of that statement, the arrogance of that mindset is full of pride. And we need to stop that in the church. You need to stop that in the way you think. The moment we judge a person because we think we are holier or more spiritual or closer to God, we forget that we are sinners in need of salvation. You see, how does a Christian approach this? You have to remember that Jesus Christ died for all enemies in which you were one. Which you were one. So to hold a sign out in the middle of a street declaring homosexuals are going to go to hell. Oh, man. You know who else is going to hell? Heterosexuals go to hell too, right? The Christian message tells us about the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. See, Jesus answers the question is, who is my neighbor? Someone asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus says, the parable that he gives is this. It's, it's so beautiful. It says, the person that I consider to be your neighbor and thus the one in whom you need to show love, service, and care for is someone that you would even see as an enemy. Your neighbor is not somebody you like. Your neighbor is not somebody you appreciate or you can deal with. Your neighbor, according to Jesus' mind, is that you are called to love, to care, to reach out, to connect to those in whom you would even call your enemy. That means this. That means as a believer, regardless of race, gender, affiliation, cultural differences, religious differences, ideological differences, as Christians, a Christian responsibility is to come alongside them, serve them, love them, and seek for their good 
whether or not they listen or believe what you believe. The heart of the Christian message is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his enemies. And the message that Jesus Christ tells his people is that you are to come alongside everyone who is different from you. Not to pick and choose who you want to serve, not to pick and choose who you want to love, not to pick and choose who you want to, to be along, uh, to, to care for, but that you're called to even walk alongside those who you call your enemy. And, your enemy. and sadly, sadly, Christians have done a piss poor job of this, have we not? We keep to our own kind, to our own temperaments. That those who are different from us, we kind of separate ourselves. Just because they don't believe what we believe. Just because they don't see the world the way we see the world. That's not what Jesus told us to do. You're telling me you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that he is your Lord and Savior, that he is the creator, and therefore you're subject to him? And if you are to profess that, and if you are to declare that, how could it be that you do not hear his voice when he says, walk and serve and love your enemies? They are your neighbors, those who are different from you. The Christian conversation to this, third thing is this. Do you know that the sexual ethics in the Bible, the boundaries, are only addressed to believers? They're only addressed to people who follow after God. Those who declare that God is sovereign and, and he is Lord and he is their God. And so he says, if you are going to be mine, if I'm going to create you for me, then this is the boundary I'm going to give to you to set you free. To set you free in such a beautiful way so that the world who look at you, who sees you, who sees my hand in you, will do what? will delight in the fact that there, is, there must be a God who can change and transform a heart and come to me. The sexual ethics is not for everybody. It's only for believers. See, when we make Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, there are things he calls us to submit to under his lordship. And one of those things is sexual ethics. That means that you include not limited to sex outside of marriage, orgies, pornography, bestiality, divorce, adultery, homosexuality. The Christian process is a process of transformation. The old has gone, the new has come. And as we are growing and changing and become more and more like Jesus, he tells us what sex was designed for. And anything we seek for outside of that is always less than the best for us. So can you, can you understand how, how ridiculous it is? That the people of the church begin to take this word that he gives and to attribute it to a world that does not even recognize or desire or know who God is. How can you give a boundary to someone who does not even recognize the, the living God and the creator of all universe? You can't. But the moment, listen, the moment when you declare Christ is Savior, he is Lord. It's the moment the Holy Spirit begins to work in you, regenerating you, opening your eyes. That you were once in darkness, but now your eyes have seen the light, and you step into light. Now your eyes have seen the face of the living God, and he shows you his truth. And in that truth, there is new change, there's transformation, right, that comes out of it. 
So I want you guys to understand this. The Christian message is not to be politicized. It is not to condemn. It is not to destroy. It is a message that God gives to you as a believer to remember that, one, you are a sinner saved by grace. And the moment you begin to condemn your brother or your sister or even someone on the outside, you forget that you were just as lost. And it took the death of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God himself, to save you. And two, the Christian message tells us, tells us that we are to love even our enemies. When was the last time you would even walk along someone who is different from you? You know what I see lately? I see a Christian community that cancels people that they don't like. What is up with that? How is that even real? How is that even a real thing? That Christians can believe that they can cancel somebody. Can you imagine Jesus Christ canceling you? Right? Over something you've done? Like, oh, you messed up again. Cancel. Right? Unfollow. And lastly, the, the Christian message of sexual ethics is given to only believers. But here's the thing. Because I am a believer. And I do struggle with this. I struggle deeply with pornography. I struggle deeply with lust. I struggle deeply with my, uh, my affections. I have, a, I have a real problem in terms of, I have, I have a real drawing towards people of the same sex as me. Like, I, I believe that Christ is that. And yet the message that I hear is that somehow I'm condemned and I'm lost, and I'm going to hell. Let me, let me, let me, for you, okay? If you're out there, let me, let me, let me say this to you. And if you guys are listening, listen to this as, as wise counsel from your pastor, okay? Jesus never tells us, all I want for you is to be straight. Jesus never tells us, all I want for you is to be heterosexual. Jesus says, be holy as I am holy. That means be distinct, be unique, be separate, be set apart as I am. That I have made you for me. And I have called you to be a people as me, right? God's image is more than just characteristic. It's more than just feelings. It's more than just sexual orientations. See, if he imparts his image on you and he calls you his son and he calls you his daughter then God's image is more than your sexual orientation. There are a lot of straight people who are lost out there. Coming to Jesus is not about coming to heterosexuality. Coming to Jesus is coming to Jesus, the person. The aim of your repentance and the goal of your salvation should be Jesus. It should not be your sexual orientation. So how foolish, and especially in the church, how foolish is it to say, oh, you're struggling with that? You should get a girlfriend. Wow, not helpful at all. Oh, you struggle with that? Get married. Oh, stop. No, it does not. Oh, you struggle with that? Stop feeling it. So on the front end, this is, listen, guys, listen, in the front end, 
If you are somebody who struggles with homosexuality, struggles with pornography, struggle with sexual immorality, struggle with just the sexual lust in general, right? In the front end, are you saved? Can you be saved? The answer is yes. Yes, you can because your sexuality is not the make it or break it of you. Your, your sexuality is not the break it, make it or break it situation of who you are, right? What saves you is the coming, it's, it's the reality that all your sin is going to be the death of you. What, what saves you is when you come to the reality that everything that you have set as your creator, as your worship, as what you deem as important, that will actually become the death of you. But the church loves to do what? The, 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 the church loves to, to, to lift up this one thing to say that God looks only at this. God only sees this. And if you struggle with this, you cannot possibly be a pleasing vessel before God. If you have a problem with this, you cannot possibly be a pleasing vessel before God. This is not what saves you. And this is not what breaks you. What breaks you, and the truth is, your primary idol is not your sexuality. Your primary idol is you. You who set yourself up in the way you feel, your affections, your thoughts. You believe and want to think that you are somehow wiser, better, greater than God himself. That somehow you know best for yourself. You who are finite, mutable. You whose heart is is wicked in every possible way. You believe that somehow you know how to dictate and move this world. No wonder God looks at you and he says, can you even, can you even grasp? Can you even grasp how big I am? Can you even grasp the things that I have done? Do you even know the secrets of this world? Do you, can you even measure the things around you. You cannot. And yet somehow you believe in this very moment that you can be your own master. See, it's not sexuality that's going to break you. So all my brothers who are struggling with pornography, I'm going to tell you something. Keep struggling. Keep fighting. Keep walking. Do you know what happens? Your repentance when you, when you begin to say, God, I recognize that it's not just about my sexuality, but it's my whole being that is against you. It's my whole being that is a rebellion against you. I don't want to think the things you think. I don't want to do the things that you called me to do. I don't want to be a part of that boundary that frees me. I'd rather jump out and let it kill me. I don't want to be a part of moving towards freedom. I want to be a part. I, I find myself rather chasing Again and again and again and again, and then for something that gives me a moment of peace and value and worth, but then dis- destroys me as I lose it. It is your whole being that is the primary issue. But when you come to repentance, check this out. When you come to repentance, it's not just about our sexuality. It's about the issue that, it's about the issue that you don't believe. There's an unregenerative soul there that you refuse to believe that God is right and true and just in what he says and what he has done. It's futile, guys, to think and be, it's, it's futile and silly to think 
that anything can make you more whole than the God who made you for himself. Let me say that again. It is futile and silly to think that anything can make you more whole than the God who made you for himself. It's not just about sexuality. It's about the wholeness of your sinful part. When you chase after your career, when you chase after your family, when you chase after love, you believe that these things will make you whole. That if I can get the right job, it will make me whole. That if I can get this person to love me more, it will make me whole. If I can get my family to be proud of me, it will make me whole. If I can get this so-and-so, it will make me whole. And it is futile and silly to believe that there is anything else that can make you more whole than the God who has made you for himself. Nothing out there can do that. Nothing out there can save you. Nothing out there can bring you to that place. But PT, I still struggle. Right, that's fine. I'll... If that's the case, and you, and you come to the recognition that that's my pro- you are right. I am a sinner before God, not just for my sexual sins, but in the fact that I have chased after everything else but God himself. And you come to the repentance before God that you are my, because of who I am, you had to give me your son. Because of your great love for me, you would give him up to bring me home. Oh, God, what love, what, what grace is unfathomable for me to understand. And you come into this place of repentance. But here's the thing. Just because you repent, it doesn't mean that it goes away, right? Just because you've come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ doesn't mean you don't struggle with lust. You don't struggle with pornography. You don't struggle with homosexuality. You don't struggle with wanting to sleep with everything that breathes. What it means is this. Your temptation is not going to go away. But what you have now is this. But by believing, there's now a supernatural work in you that gives you now a greater affection for Jesus, which is now competing against the temptation you've submitted your life to previous. By coming into relationship with your creator, There is an actual supernatural power that begins to work in you that gives you an affection, a desire, a want, a hunger for Jesus that comes into competition now with the affection and temptation that you once lived and breathed and was born into. Am I saying that you're never going to have those temptations again? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that there is going to be a real battle now. And there will be days when you are going to be victorious before God. And there will be days when you're going to just be like, I don't want to listen to you anymore. It's hard. And these battles is real. But here's the thing. The promise of the word is this. That I who began a good work in you, I will see it to completion. You will not. I I will find you as you are, but I will not leave you as you are. I will find you as you are, but I will not leave you until you are sanctified and you look like my son. The battle that you go through, whether it's sexuality, whether it's pornography, whether 
I will not leave you there because I will give you an affection for me. And that affection will overcome all things. You know when you love somebody, all of a sudden all the things around you that once kind of bothered you, it doesn't really bother you anymore. All the things that kind of once get in your way, doesn't really get in your way anymore because your affection has changed. When, you, when, when, you're, when you're focused on something, you don't get distracted by other things anymore. Sometimes you do. They come back here and there, but the affection of that continues to stir and move and transform and change your heart. One example I, I'll give is this. You know, majority of men are born with sexual desire to sleep with as many women as possible, right? Chalk it off for, you know, the need to procreate or whatever, right? Would I tell that man to commit adultery against his wife that it's okay because he's born with those desires? No. I would say, do you know Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you recognize that you are a broken man in need of salvation? Do you recognize that if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he says he is, that means that you need to come into an actual conversation about what is going on in your heart and in your life. Have you come to the recognition that you are broken before your God? Not just in terms of what you feel, but in terms of your thoughts, in terms of your desires, in terms of what you seek after, in terms of what you worship. Have you come to that recognition? If you have, then let me tell you something. The affection that begins now to work in you, though you still get tempted to look at another woman, the affection of God tells you what? Focus on your wife. Whom you, whom you ought to love as Christ loves the church. You are to grow into that. Will you be fighting it? Of course. Will you be tempted? Of course. Will I tell you that one day it's going to go away in this lifetime? Probably not. You probably might die with it, right? But the thing is this. The journey of Christianity is progression and sanctification. You grow. As long as there is a battle you're not going to lose. As long as in your heart you recognize the need to keep fighting, it's when you lose that, it's when you lost that hunger, it's when you should be worried. But the fact that you even have that hunger, the fact that there is even a stirring in your spirit about it, tells me what? It tells me, man, fight the good fight. Finish your race. And there will be, for you, and there will be waiting for you a crown of righteousness. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of my son. I will make you whole in this life or the next. Right? The conversation about sexuality, guys, is this. If you don't understand where these feelings came from, the brokenness of it, if you don't understand that God created you for himself, then you're going to live into this moment that you're, that you're trapped in, believing that this is how I feel. This is what I think is right. This is what I think is good. Rather than believing and understanding that I was made by a creator for, by him and for him. That to be subject to him is to be actually in the safest place for me. To be subject to him is actually my delight. To be within the boundaries of his protection is my delight. It is my joy. It is my good. See, if you don't understand the beginning then we find ourselves lost in this journey of fighting over our personal feelings. If you don't understand the beginning, then you don't understand why people struggle the way they struggle. And if you as a church don't understand how people struggle the way they struggle, you find yourself running around 
pointing fingers, casting judgment, calling names, breaking down instead of lifting up. The Christian message that you should be proclaiming and understanding in your heart is that we believe in the guy and the God who died for his enemies. At the heart of the Christian message is the man who went to the cross for his enemies. So how could you do How could you look at somebody and judge them in your heart? And on top of that, the Christian message is about walking to love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Someone who is different from you. Anyone by gender, ideology, political references, sexuality, culture. To come alongside them, to love them, to seek for their good, to seek for their well-being. That is the Christian message. So I don't know what message you've been hearing, right? It probably is the messed up message. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ who has come to redeem and to reconcile a generation of people back to him. Let me reintroduce you to your God. He loves you. He wants you. And he has made you for him. Know this, that he who began a good work in you, he will finish it. Recognize it's not just the sin of sexuality that's going to negate you. It's when you don't recognize your God for who he is. And, he, and he's shown us that he is good. He, he's shown us that he is trustworthy. How? He died and he came back from the dead. If you struggle about Christianity, that's the first question you should ask. Did Jesus Christ die and came back from the dead? If he is, then everything he says and who he stands for, what he, what he calls me into must be real. And I need to wrestle with that. Because if he didn't, you don't need to be here. This message is ridiculous for you. But if he did come back from the dead, there is a beauty and a delight and a transformation waiting for you. So church, wake up. The worst thing you can do is reintroduce your God to a generation in the most negative and ugly way. Every generation, God reintroduces himself to that generation. We proclaim a gospel of grace, of justice, of beauty, of righteousness. Go out and do what is right, but speak it with such love that it brings people alongside you. Let's pray.